and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Vasca, and I'm here to welcome you to the second session in our critical conversations around the movie Crip Camp, as well as the topic of disability rights and disability activism. I am joined, as always, by Danielle Das and Dr. Irina Greenman, and we pick up the conversation talking about education and disability. So I'm going to maybe... Uh, throw a little wrench into this conversation for a minute, though, because all three of us are educators and all three of us have really needed what the ADA provides and IDEA provides. America is the only country that has some degree of acceptance for people with disabilities, for the educational side And so this is what I wanted to ask you. In terms of the educational side of all of this, what I find weird, extremely weird about this country is that schools are required to do a lot related to special education and pay a lot of lip service to it at a minimum. They don't necessarily actually live up to those expectations, but there at least are those expectations and they are, you know, like very minimally enforced, but you know, there's some sense of, oh, an ax might fall on me if I don't do X, Y, Z. Why is it that we as a country are so careful in our verbiage with children, but the second they turn 18 and graduate, yes, Ms. Das, what do you have to say to that? I was raising my hand because (laughs) I was like, no, pick me, pick me, I know. Um, It's because special education is not for disabled kids, it's for able-bodied parents. Right. It's it's because able-bodied parents want their child to have this, to have that, to have access to this, to have access to that. Nobody gives a fuck what those disabled kids need or want. And so the minute they turn 18, we don't care about them anymore because now they are a legal citizen of their own right instead of an able-bodied person's dependent. That's why. Preach it. That was an excellent summation. (laughs) I have sat through so many IEP conferences, both as the parent and as the gen ed uh, teacher representative and as the special ed case manager. And I can tell you consistently, those meetings are about parents. They are not about students. Mm -hmm. Yep, I agree. As somebody who's been one of the students, I I am ADHD, I'm autistic. I was a disabled child and I had a whole, you know, I, I was, before a lot of the IEP stuff, but I definitely had a lot of meetings about, you know, what my needs were and how my teachers were going to meet it and whatnot. And yeah, no, a lot of it was, was geared toward my parents and it's, my parents were, were excellent, but even, but they both still fall into the, you know, the, the classic example is the autism mom. Mm Mm-hmm. Please don't get me started. I have a <laughs> daughter who is autistic. And when people describe themselves as, as an autism mom, I want to punch them in the face. Like, Same. you know, who is an autism mom is a mom who has autism. That's an autism mom. Yes. An autistic mother. Yes. 
Like that's, that is an autism mom. And, and it's, these, these are parents who are appropriating their kids' narratives and their kids' lives and their kids' voices and are silencing the voices of their disabled children in order to make themselves feel better. And I, I have to tell you, as the mother, I don't understand it. I really don't. I get how it becomes a part of your identity. I really do, because you spend so much time and so much energy and so much emotional labor taking care of that child and trying to make sure that that child has everything they need and trying to make sure that that child is able to thrive. And it, it is so um, labor intensive. It really is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have three kids. One of them is neurotypical, two are neurodiverse. And I will tell you very honestly, that the neurodiverse children require a whole lot more time and energy to parent than my neurotypical child does. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that all neurotypical kids require less time and energy. It could just be the personality of mine. I only have one, so I don't have a you know large sample size. But, but I, to the extent that that impacts my identity, I think of myself as an autism advocate. I think of myself as an autism activist. I don't think of myself as an autism mom because my relationship to her is not what gives me any interest in this community. The desire to help people is what gives me an interest in this community. Um, and, and just this, I, I don't know, I can't even, say it in a coherent fashion because like there's so there's such a complex issue there and it yeah no the, it's it's deeply complex and to unpack all of it takes so much time i mean for me growing up i always knew i was very neurodivergent and my parents knew that i had a learning disability on some level but they desperately fought against any kind of label other than gifted. They actually actively fought for me to make sure that I was actually identified as gifted appropriately because I was very twice exceptional and very clearly twice exceptional. But this is also another area I want to talk about for a quick minute related to disabilities because a lot of people don't necessarily even understand that people with disabilities can also be gifted, that their intelligence is masked by having to constantly overcome so many barriers every day. And you would be shocked by the number of geniuses we have in this society that suddenly emerge when people have appropriate access to the things that they need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, uh, you were talking about your parents fighting against the dual exceptional label. Yeah. Um, so I am, was all through school labeled gifted and ADHD. Um, and I had an IEP. I did not find that out until I went to my first IEP conference for my daughter. And my mom said, well, you know, you had an IEP. And I was like, what? And she goes, yeah, you were, uh, we had you evaluated, you know, when you were a kid 
and you were dual exceptional. You had gifted and also um, a severe executive function disorder related to ADHD. And so you had an IEP and I went to all your conferences. And if you have any questions, ask me because I've done it uh, for years. And I was like, I was never even invited to one of the IEP meetings. And she was like, yeah, well, I didn't want you to think of yourself that way. My parents said the same thing to me after the fact that the reason that they fought against that label so hard and never told me about it was because they didn't want me to think about myself that way. Even though I had been identified using the Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale with what was probably dyscalculia mm -hmm. and, you know. Yeah, <laughs> my, one of the things I will always be grateful to my parents is that they realized, they looked at the situation, realized I had already figured out that I was disabled and also figured out that I was gifted. And they said, you know what, we can't hide this. And so they, they went ahead and started, you know, inviting me to any meetings and, and letting me know that I was, you know, identified as gifted and disabled and dual exceptional. Because they said, you know what, she's going to think of herself this way anyway. What we need to be doing is focusing on she thinks of herself this way and doesn't see it as a problem. Well, that would be an issue because my parents definitely think of it as a problem. Um, to this day. I have arguments with my mother where she'll say, well, you need to do thus and such. And I'm like, mom, severe executive dysfunction. Yeah. I can't do that. And she's yeah. like, Danielle, you've got to quit making excuses. Now, in my, in my parents' case, it was a little different because I was actually born with a physical deformity that made it obvious that mm -hmm. I was not like everyone else. And so I think my parents were trying to encourage me to always present my most brilliant face forward because they were afraid if I was ever placed in special education, a lot of assumptions would be made about me just based on my appearance. In the same way that, you know, it took many years to integrate all schools after Brown v. Board of Education, you know, passage of the ADA did not immediately open every school door for, mm -hmm. for disabled people. Um, the elementary school that I went to in Florida in the 80s um, had a self-contained classroom for disabled kids and it did not matter what your diagnosis was. If you had an IEP, you were in the self-contained classroom and they had a um, special school. One of the elementary schools was converted to a school for disabled people and if you weren't high you know high enough functioning finger quotes for those of you who can't see it because it's a really insulting term um to attend the self-contained class at your local school then you would go to um, the special school and that was pretty much the extent of any kind of special education services you really didn't start to get them until the 90s um and so i do think to some extent, my parents were trying to protect me um, because they had this nightmare scenario that I was going to be a gifted kid in the self-contained classroom um, where they weren't even doing standard level curriculum, much less, you know, gifted enrichment curriculum. Um, but I still, I also think part of it is they're having gone to medical school and just 
been really sort of indoctrinated with the these outdated notions of what disability means. I mean, my mother hates that I refer to myself as disabled, absolutely hates it. And she's like, just don't ever say it in front of my friends. Um, and I'm like, well, they have eyeballs, mom. I'm pretty sure, <laughs> like, I think they're gonna know <laughs> unless you want me to just be asleep every time they're here. Um, you know, because uh, I, I have deformed joints that are just evident from looking at me and I can't walk well and stuff like that. Um, and, and she's, but she's just like, you're not disabled. Like, no, I am though, legally, by the definition, that is what that means. Um, but to my mother, you're not disabled if you're still productive right, and right. still some right. kind of contributing member of society. If yeah. you are disabled, it means that you are a leech on society and you should be institutionalized. And, and I actually get this similar pushback, at least in the eyes of the people I talk to. I, mm -hmm. You know, nobody actually says it outright to me when I identify myself as disabled. But there's always this look of, oh, she's going to talk about this. <laughs> she's not disabled. She's not disabled. I, I recommend the Facebook page, Disabled and Proud. It's run by an activist friend of mine, sort of an aggregator. They go through on Facebook and they, they find pieces that people have written that activists write on social media expressing their, their pride in their disabled identity. It's a fabulous page to follow. And it's funny because I actually wrote a college application essay on this topic of how I identified strongly with my disabled identity and how all of the disfigurement issues that I had from birth really made me who I am and all of the problems with my visual impairments, my hearing impairments have all made me a much more empathic person as a whole. And and I actually mean that empathic as well as empathetic. Like there, there is something to both of those. Mm -hmm. And I just remember my mom's jaw dropping when she read that essay and her, you know, feeling like I needed to reword it or craft it in some other way even though everybody else who read it loved it, but she made me take the word disability out of it. Everything else was fine, just not the word disability. There's a great hashtag, say the word. Yeah. It's about don't be afraid of the word, of the word disabled. And you know, my mother wasn't, it was, for her it wasn't so much about the word, for her it was the wheelchair that was the, mm. that was the lump that she couldn't get over. Um, the hump she couldn't get over. And she, she said to my, not well over the phone, not so much to my face, but directly to me. Um, she said, I, I have this nightmare that you're going to end up as just a lump in a wheelchair. My mother used that exact phrase. That's interesting. And yeah, it seems to be this sort of, this is the image. And then a while later, um, as a, as a graduation gift for my PhD, we went to Europe and my mother for the first time saw me actually going around and doing things in the wheelchair that I would not have been able to do on foot. And that was what just completely opened her eyes. She was like, this is a total game changer. I never knew. 
and you know we would go somewhere and then at the end of it I would have energy and she would be tired for the first time in 20 years mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was what what helped her see it for the first time and that was when she, she also you know and this, this is why I'm, I'm really close with my mother because she then also took the next step and went this is why you hate the phrase wheelchair bound and I was like yes because I'm not bound by my wheelchair. I am wheelchair mobile. I'm a wheelchair user. Because it it gets me places. Mm-hmm. Um, my wheelchair. That a lot of us in the community. Um, for for anyone listening, I don't know if either of you've done this. I'd, I'd love to hear it if you have. Uh, all of my mobility equipment has names. Oh, I my mine has names too. So my rollator's name is actually Chanson. Oh, beautiful. Do you get it? Do you get it? It's such a nerdy joke because of Chanson de Roland. Yeah. You know, yeah the medieval. Yeah, I got yeah. it. That's so you're Roland. Um, mine is named Krista. Because one of the earliest sort of historical events I remember experiencing was watching the Challenger launch from my elementary school library. And I was obsessed with Krista McAuliffe. Mm. And she was the reason that as a child, I decided I wanted to become a teacher. And she was the reason that from childhood, I have been obsessed with space exploration and science fiction and all of it. And I have a face mask. Nice, nice. This is her quote in Latin. Um, the, if you, if you, if you, um, early. Posteri tatem tango doceo. I touch the future. I teach. Then it says Krista McAuliffe, and I my 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 chair is named Krista because she her memory is what takes me where I need to go, and I have I have my face mask with that on it, and I also have my wheelchair bag that I just finally got just came in. Oh, cool! As well, yeah. So this is going to go on the back of my wheelchair. That's wonderful, awesome. and that's and that's another thing that I feel like you know when we talk about adaptive medical devices. And, you know, how you can accommodate people with disabilities in different ways. A lot of people aren't necessarily always thinking about accessories or proactive ideas. Uh, Danielle and I were talking actually about the idea of messenger bags at the library. I loved loved your idea about that, Danielle. Well, I was saying, you know, um, I have gross motor mobility issues and I also have fine motor mobility issues because arthritis is just wreaked havoc on my joints. Um, and so I have a very difficult time accessing my local library um, when it's not a pandemic. Right now they're doing curbside pickup, which is fantastic. But uh, before that, you know, they weren't. And I could walk through the library using a mobility device, either a, you know, rollator or crutches or whatever, depending on which point we were at in my physical recovery from surgery and stuff. Um, or I could carry books, but I can't do both. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was saying, you know, it would be so simple and inexpensive for them to furnish just like some messenger bags and you could attach them to like a little dispensary that's on the handicapped parking sign uh, because that's where the people who need them are going to be beginning and ending their journey. Um, and if I could just, you know, grab a bag and get my books and help my kids check out and stuff like that, it would be great. Um, 
right now I have, I rely on taking the children with me and they have to carry everything because I can't. Um, and if they say, you know, hey, mom, could you stop at the library while I'm at school and pick up this book? I can't if I, because I can't go by myself. I know that people will hear that and they'll say, well, just bring your own bag in the same way that they, you know, during the whole straw controversy, they were oh, like, God, well, just bring your own straw. I know, right? <laughs> um, I could it. But, but, you know, my whole thing is, it's already a huge barrier that I have to overcome to access these public spaces. It's not fair for you to make it even harder by saying I have to bring all my accessibility equipment with me um, to, to be able to interact with this public space when you're talking about something as simple as a goddamn plastic straw or a messenger bag that costs a dollar, like, you know, at least pretend you want me to be able to use your services. Exactly. Yeah. And I've, I've had this exact issue with so many other places where they will provide you like a cart or something mm -hmm. that you can roll and push if you are disabled. And then when it's time after you've checked out, you're not allowed to take it out of the store to get to your car. And it's like, okay, so let me take it to my car, or yeah, yeah. Do you know the whole time that I was using crutches, I had a really hard time grocery shopping or anything like that. I mean, aside from the fact that it's virtually impossible to navigate huge stores on crutches, um, because for some of that time, if I had the cart to hold on to. I could get around without the crutches because the cart sort of took the place of the crutches in terms of holding me up and giving me somewhere to rest my ankle and stuff like that. Um, but then it was always this question of, well, what do I do with my crutches? Because I can't leave them in the car because I can't take the cart all the way out. And, you know, I need them to get from the car to the cart in the first mm -hmm. place. And if I put them in the cart, then I don't really have room for any other right, items because right, right, they consume right. the whole thing. Um, and uh, I, so I was talking to a friend of mine over Facebook and she said, oh, let me show you this picture. And this local tiny market, wherever she lives, had someone come in and just attach these little plastic um, hooks, I guess you could describe them, to the side of their grocery carts so that you could fit a cane or crutches or walking sticks and they would just be along the side of the cart. And it was something that the owner did because their child you know, used mobility devices. And so they understood that it was really hard for people to use um, cards. That would be life changing because right. I always have to use a cane to get to the, uh, okay. I'm not and sure I, you've ever seen me happy flap, Ariel, but this is <laughs> <laughs> flapping. Oh and, my God. <laughs> and, and I just thought, you know, these changes are so simple. They're not hard and they're not expensive. And if people just cared enough to think outside the box, okay, here's the problem. What could we do to solve it? Even two large zip ties. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. it doesn't have to be complicated. No. You know, and a lot of it also, I think, comes down to individual willingness to help people too. You know, I mean, even if you are not necessarily a business owner and you're not in the position to make change on, you know, 
a specific store or a specific public space, you can still certainly help the people that you see around you when you see things that need to happen. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've been in movie theaters where, and I, I know this is unusual for most people, but I go to the movies like all the time, not since the pandemic hit, obviously, but I used to go to the movie theater all the time. And I would see people in wheelchairs who were having trouble navigating anything. And there were people who worked in the place just standing around, not helping them get onto the ramp, etc. And so, you know, it takes nothing to stand up and help them. It takes nothing to reach out and be kind. And if someone seems like they might need something, just offer it. Well, and, and some people do get training. Some of the places train their employees that it's insulting to offer assistance to disabled people. I know. And that's, and that's so not correct. And, you know, it's, that, that said, if somebody offers me help and I decline it, people need to fucking respect that. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that, that there are a few things that make me more angry than somebody walking up behind me, taking my wheelchair and deciding to push me somewhere. Yeah. Um, I have my, my chair has collapsible push handles. It's one of my favorite features on it. Um, I mean, that situation is someone taking your agency away from you. Uh, so there uh -huh. is no way that is ever acceptable. Exactly. Um, one of the things I'm, that, that I'm going to be getting soon um, for those, those push handles that will stay on them even when they collapse is these little sleeves that you can get on Etsy and they've got spikes. <laughs> no touch. No touch. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and it's the kind of thing, the number of times I've gotten on the metro in my wheelchair and some other passenger will just hang their purse on my wheelchair. Wow. And I'm like, this is part of my body. Yeah. Would oh you just hang it on my leg? Would you just hang it on my shoulder? And, I... one thing, and one thing I think a lot of people don't realize, I can feel that. Yeah. It, they're designed for safety so that you can feel when something happens to it. Right, right. So, like, the one of the things I had to train my husband out of is that he, he tends to tap his fingers on things. Mm -hmm. And so when if he was helping me, he'd be holding onto the wheelchair handles. And if we were standing still for any length of time, he'd start tapping on the handles. And it was painful. Mm. And so he had to train himself out of tapping on my wheelchair handles because it really hurt. I can believe that. I can absolutely believe that. <laughs> Because the vibrations would travel through the whole thing. It was like, yeah. ow. It's like him tapping on my entire nervous system at the same time. It was awful. Well, and I also think as a fellow migraine sufferer, like there is a thing to just being touched or feeling vibrations throughout your body that just, oh my God, don't touch me. Get away, away. Yeah. Um, and then add, that, add to that the fact that I'm autistic. Yeah. And I have the touch sensitivity that goes with that. I don't yeah. like being... Not a good recipe. Yeah, so the combination of those two factors would make it so dramatically different. And people have no awareness of their own invasion of other people's space. Yeah. And and especially, I mean, that's that's generally true, but it's especially true when you're dealing with this population that we're all a part of because a, 
you know, one thing they did talk about a lot in Crip Camp is the fact that a lot of the people who attended Camp Jeanette felt so invisible until they went there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, all of my experience being in a wheelchair has been in a manual wheelchair because that's what we could get. Um, and I can't push one. So I always had somebody, um, you know, pushing it. So I didn't have any experience with strangers touching the handles because there was always a person there. Um, but one of the things that I noticed very quickly is how invisible I felt sitting in it because from the front, people would just smash their shopping bag into my face or, you know, uh, their uh, child would be messing with the wheels and they didn't say anything. Um, or, you know, someone who kind of fidgets, they'd be swinging their arms and I'm like dodging, you know, being whacked in the face with their hand. And, it, and I know they could see me. Cigarettes, the worst. Oh, I've never been anywhere where I was, because I was at work. There's no smoking okay. at work. Yeah, yeah I had, I, I actually, my hair almost got fired from a cigarette. Oh, my God. Oh. It's, it's at about that level. Like, people sort of hold right. it at which level. And so somebody basically accidentally stuck their cigarette in my hair. Oh, my gosh. And I was okay. I didn't even get burned, but it was a close one. Wow. Um, and it was, it was terrifying. My husband has been amazing with, with helping me with this. Like, we went to Best Buy to get a tablet, and... You know, it was the kind of thing where where I flagged down an employee to help me, and the guy proceeds to completely ignore me, mm-hmm. and asked my husband, you know, it's like I'm, I'm looking for a tablet. He says, "Oh, okay." Turns to my husband, "What kind of tablet is she looking for?" Yeah, yeah. And my husband's like, "I don't know. Ask her." I really, I was appreciated that they included that a little bit in the doc where they're talking about training the camp counselors. And, you know, I forget what the conversation was, but one of the able-bodied counselors said, you know, something about one of the campers. And he said, well, you know, don't talk about her, talk to her. Um, And that really resonated with me because the number of times that someone would address a question that's really to me, to whoever was pushing my chair was just so, it happened so often that after a while I quit getting mad about it. Like it was just... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh I, I have to tell you this story. I once went to a, a medical appointment at a certain very large university hospital. Both, uh, actually all three of us, my mother, my father, and myself were all in wheelchairs at this time. So my father had his scooter and my mother and I were both in wheelchairs separately because of other things that were going on at the time. And we showed up to the medical appointment. You know, it was a, it was a huge hassle finding someone who could push us to this appointment. You know, it, it was an incredibly difficult situation just to get to the medical appointment. But then when we're at the medical appointment, the doctor had to spend about 10 minutes going on about, well, I don't know to whom I'm supposed to talk now. The patient. Yeah. Why is that hard? Yeah. And he he was like, well, sh- who is the most able-bodied person <laughs> here to whom I should address oh, wow. these yeah, results? I had, a, I had kind of a similar thing. Um, a friend of mine and I were, were actually in the process of getting our wheelchairs repaired, both at the same place. Uh, this is this was um, 
one of the, the two major sort of national companies that does wheelchair clinics. And we, we both, so we were both in our wheelchair, the, and we, we each had an appointment on consecutive days. And so each of us chose to use canes and crutches on the day of the other's appointment so we could help advocate. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating because they literally didn't recognize us when we weren't in our wheelchairs because they never looked at our faces. If of we course were not. And so, when, for example, when I was with her, they, they kept talking to me as if I was the person who knew all about her. She was the caregiver. So that, as if I was the caregiver because they literally didn't recognize they had seen me the day before in my wheelchair because they've never really looked at me. And this was a this was a clinic that had been working with me for two years. And they literally did not know what I looked like. And and the same with her. When we weren't in our wheelchairs, we were able to really advocate very effectively for each other because literally the only disguise we needed was not being in the chair Mm -hmm. because they looked at us so little that suddenly we were different people. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you right now that there have been times in my life when I physically needed to be in a wheelchair that I have chosen to be on chanson, my rollator, for several reasons. Because it gives me that little circle of protection from other people so they can't, you know, be pushing at least on the front of me. Mm-hmm. And so that people can't other me quite as much as they do when I'm in a wheelchair. And so that I have a little more ability to do a defensive strategy, but then there's always the risk that I'm going to fall over at any minute. There's the risk that, you know, something adverse could happen because it's not actually the thing I need in that moment. It's the thing that society is more likely to accept me in. So the Virginia Department of Motor Vehicles, Two years ago, I think this was now, my driver's license was up. It had to be renewed. And I had been really sick. I'd been hospitalized. So I I had to go at the very end. It was the last day to get it done. And I really wanted to be on my uh, on my rollator because I knew that going in my wheelchair, I was never going to be able to get anything done. So I went on the rollator. And when they gave me the vision test, the woman messed up the machine and didn't put the card in correctly. So instead of looking at the little eye chart, I wound up looking directly into the halogen from about three inches away. What? And promptly had a really serious migraine. Uh, Fortunately, my husband was was with me, so I was physically going to be okay. I was able to take emergency meds, whatnot. But she got so concerned about the possibility of me having seizures that she reported me as a concerned citizen, and I lost my driver's license as a potentially impaired driver. And it took me eight months and about $900 in appointments and testing and like hearings and all that crap to get my driver's license back. And even now, I have to be tested every six months and get a note from my doctor and have a full set of tests and everything to make sure that I can keep my driver's license. Every six months. For the rest of my life. There are no words, Arena. And 
if you go on the if you go on the, the Department of Motor Vehicles website, there's a whole page encouraging concerned citizens to report potentially impaired drivers, which ranges from, you know, the drivers who you know with, with disabilities that you think might uh, might potentially the endanger your safety or theirs on the road to drivers who get this one appear autistic. That was one. That's on the website. Um, I don't remember if it was on the website or in the pamphlet that you can download, but it's one or the other. And there's this whole thing about the importance of concerned citizens in r reporting disabled drivers to keep everyone safe. It's very 1930s. And as it turns out, there are the, the, there's a whole court case going about this because uh, and it's being it's being um, pled by the Prince William County Disability Services Board because one in six disabled drivers in Virginia has had their license taken away since 2015. One in six. And that's disabled drivers without a safety, without a bad safety record, like not for an accident, for just, yeah. be, just for being disabled, one in six. And here I was pissed about their parking placard rules. Jesus. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm pissed about those too. But yeah, well, no, I mean, <laughs> there's a but, lot there to be upset about. But this, this is a whole other level. Yeah, a whole other level. Like I remember when you were going through this the first time, Arena. Mm -hmm. I never heard the whole upshot of this. this yeah, that's what, that's how it turned out. I actually have to. Um, <sighs> one of the things that's going on right now is that in October, on October 31st appropriate for the scary day my my disability parking placard expires and I have my testing is due so I have to prove to them that I'm disabled enough that I still have to get that I still need the parking placard but yeah. able-bodied enough to be allowed to keep my driver's license at all and so somewhere in November I will find out whether they have decided a I am, if, if they decide in my favor, then yes, I will be allowed to keep driving and I'll have a disability parking placard. If they decide not in my favor, it could go either of two directions. They might take away my disability parking placard or they might take away my license entirely. Great. So, Great. yeah, that's coming up. <laughs> I don't, I, my doctor has explained this to me several times. I still frankly just don't understand it, but I have to apply every six months Mm -hmm. for a quote-unquote temporary disability placard and I'm like but my disability is not temporary yeah like there is no cure it is not getting better you don't have to do this that is what that's it is correct that's incorrect they, they have one. told me consistently that I do not qualify for the permanent one because insert reason the most common appears to be that I wasn't born with my issues that they're all acquired I can tell you I can tell you they're incorrect there is a list of qualifications of uh -huh. which the most basic is that you cannot walk 300 yards without stopping to rest. I mean, I can't walk 20 feet without stopping to rest. So, right. so <laughs> yeah, you absolutely are qualified, period. End of statement. You could go to a health clinic at CVS and get that placard filled. Huh. Seriously. So for our listeners, this particular conversation 
should be something that educates you a little bit in how information is actually disseminated in the disability community, because clearly no one is centrally telling us anything. It is yep. only wow. when we get together to yeah. talk about these things <laughs> that we learn what's actually going on. Nobody is centrally distributing information, number one. And number two, I think, and this goes back to a lot of like ableist thinking, I do think that there is a reluctance on the part of insurance companies, doctors, everybody to label a disability as permanent because in their mind, it's like you're giving up. Yep. And, right. you know, I've had my, uh, my, in my disability, <clears throat> excuse me, um, income insurance company has said repeatedly, you know, you're too young to give up. We, we really want you to keep trying to get better enough to go back to work. And I'm like, okay, but my condition is permanent. Like it's not, it's not going to get any better, but I do agree with you that it would be great if I could go back to work. And the only way that's going to happen is if work becomes more accessible. It's not me that needs to change. One of my pet projects that I've actually been, been wanting to start, I've been sort of starting to collect information for it, is that I've been wanting to start a website called Reinventing the Wheelchair. Essentially just collecting all this information where people are like, how do you get a disability placard? How do you apply for disability? How do you do the social security application? Because nobody's telling us. What are the ways that you could get this stuff done? How do you get yourself a wheelchair? What is the process for going through a wheelchair clinic? You know, all this information, places like what websites can you use to, to get things like, you know, websites like Spin Life, you know, give, give information and let's just put it all here in a place where people can search for it. So that if somebody in our community wants to be like, okay, how do I get myself a good wheelchair? How do I get myself a good wheelchair? They type in, boom, there's information on how they get a good wheelchair as brought to it by members of the community. And I think that would be a really great project to have people working on because yeah, we don't get our information from anywhere. No, the rest of the world does not care. And well, I was about to say, doesn't care if we have this information. It's not true. They actively do not want us to have it. Yeah. Insurance companies especially do not want us to have any information that is going to help us in either our claims or our ability to stay alive. Yeah. Well, and social security, at the application process for disability is is ridiculous on purpose. Mm -hmm. So they're certainly not interested in making it any more accessible. I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Irina, but aren't there a lot of people who have been waiting for like a couple of years and keep getting mail that drives them to desperation from social security while they're waiting to find out? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what's excessively strange to me is the inconsistency with how they handle people's applications. Because my own application, for example, was approved within 30 days. Mine took five years. But <sighs> it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. It, it all depends on what office you're working with because there's several different regional offices and it all depends on exactly what chain your, your application goes up through, um, which legal offices handle what aspects of it. It depends on what your doctor's notes say. 
um, whether you're whether you're going for physical or mental or both, what those doctors' notes say. Um, there's I've never quite gotten over the fact that you're not that by their regulation you are not allowed to record or take notes during either your physical or your psych eval. What is wrong with this system? Um, like the patient is not allowed to yeah. have any of it. Yeah. Um, and it, that when, when you're in there and it, so it was one of these things where after each one, as soon as I got out of the appointment, I sat down and wrote down everything I could remember, which after my psych eval wasn't much because I was deep in, in PTSD flashback by that point. But, you know, that was basically all I wrote down. I was like, I, you know, I was in there for an hour according to my watch and I, I'm not sure what year it is. <laughs> so hopefully they'll, they'll get an impression of that. And they did. They did. It's a terrible procedure and deliberately so. One of my sort of personal goals as an advocate is to at some point just see written down in any, any official document anywhere, some description of that, that procedure that uses the word brutality. Mm-hmm. Because it is deliberately set up to drive disabled people to desperation and to, in some cases, self-harm that process is designed to kill us. And again, it's the kind of thing where nobody's, nobody's there to help us. So we have to help each other. And if anything else, that I think is the most important precedent set by Crip Camp. Here is a major piece of media that was aired through Sundance Film Festival that was executive produced by the Obamas. And here it is giving information about disability movement history. If nothing else, the simple precedent of saying we're going to have that important a pair of people, the Obamas, executive producing a film on this topic from mass media is huge. When, when information about disability is that yeah. hush hush. Yeah. And when attitudes are such that not many people really reach outside their bubble necessarily to understand what is going on in the experience of other people's lives. And you either, you either get tragedy or inspiration porn or inspiration porn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Stella Young there. Yep. I, I think though that your idea arena about a website is a really, really good idea. You know, the, organization that I volunteer with the most, uh, IFA, our, our whole vision and mission is to elevate the patient voice in these conversations and to identify problems within the patient community and bring other stakeholders to the table and come up with solutions when, where the patient voice is centered in the solution process as opposed to you know, a consulting role and someone else is, is making the decisions. And, um, and so that organization has really sort of laid the foundation that, that that process works and, and it gets results. And, you know, I'm thinking of all the things that could be identified in terms of solution if, if disabled people were in those conversations more, you know, one of the one of the things that used to drive me crazy um, when I was using a wheelchair to, 
to get around at work, we had an elevator in my building. Um, and so I had to ride the elevator just about every day. And it, I used to just complain to people, it is insanity to me that elevator buttons are on the front side of the elevator, like right next to the door. Because when yes. you roll into an elevator, if you're in a wheelchair, then you're facing the back wall. And it is not possible to turn around in the yep. amount of time that you have to select where you want to go. And you can't turn around before the elevator opens, or at least I couldn't. I'm sure someone else whose spine was more mobile might be able to handle it because then I can't see what is behind me. And, you know, so I tried that a couple of times. And if someone was getting off the elevator, I would just crash into them because I had no idea they were there. And, you know, I thought, how simple would it be if they would just put the damn buttons on the back wall? Like able-bodied people can touch the back wall as easy as they can touch the front wall. And if you're in a wheelchair, then they're right in front of your face. Yep, ability serves everyone, yeah. Yeah, at some point they made a decision to lower the buttons so that they would be accessible at wheelchair height. But there must not have been an actual person who used a wheelchair in that conversation, or they could have told them, guys, putting them lower does not help me if you don't put them on the side of the, you know, space that I can actually see. Right. Or even the sides, you know, put them on yeah. both sides. It's not that difficult. Thank you for listening to what is at times a very difficult conversation, difficult to be a part of, and I would imagine also difficult to hear at times. Part of my mission in recording such a deeply personal series of episodes is not to lay bare for the whole world everything that I am. It is to educate. I feel that it is deeply important to educate others on other perspectives. I have always found that people have much more open minds when they know that you are being open and vulnerable with them. Please, please share this episode with anyone that you think might benefit from it. Share these conversations and talk about them with people you love. Thank you.